Hi, this is Nikki Belmonte, Executive Director of the American Birding Association. I want to thank all of you who have supported this year's nesting season appeal. If you haven't had a chance to support our campaign, I'm asking you for your support now. Visit us online at aba.org appeal or call us at 800-850-2473. Our work is made possible by the generosity of donors like you. Thanks and enjoy this week's podcast. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick. It's my very favorite time of the year. It's breeding bird survey season, the very best of the bird community science initiatives, in my opinion. Sorry, Christmas bird count. You're just not rigorous enough. Breeding bird surveys combine three of my very favorite things about birding. There's obviously the actual looking at birds, mostly listening for birds, of course. Uh, plus the coverage of seemingly innocuous areas where you can find cool stuff. I love covering my outlying counties. And third, the pages and pages of bird data on spreadsheets, which, I have to admit, attracts me like a moth to a porch light or a night jar to the moths at a porch light or an owl to the night jar to the moths at the porch light. So right now I am in the middle of my BBS runs, I've done the first one. I have another one in the period between when I'm recording this and when this episode releases, and then my last one this weekend. Breeding bird surveys are great because it is just the same thing every year. The consistency, the repetition, that's how you get the good bird data. But this year I did do something different. I used Merlin's Sound Identification AI on my route. A lot of birders are starting to use Merlin's magic sound ID feature. There have been some growing pains to be sure, but the general consensus has been that it, it is pretty good. So, so I decided to, to, to add this to my routine just to see how well it worked and also to see if I was missing anything. Maybe the AI can find stuff that I miss. A BBS is kind of perfect for Merlin because the number of species you encounter isn't typically overwhelming. It's the 60-odd regular breeding birds in my area. There usually aren't any surprises. Uh, and what surprises I do get are usually, you know, something like the less common breeders in my area. Uh, but I do know the songs of all these birds pretty well. So I could essentially, you know, offer decent quality control. A uh, little note on how I, how I did this. Uh, I, I hooked up a small microphone to my phone that I sort of aimed out the open window of my car while I stood outside doing the point counts. That way my phone could stay in the car and I wasn't fiddling with it before and after counting. It took me a few stops to get everything sort of situated the way I wanted it. Uh, what I would do is I would start the Merlin sound ID on my phone, and then I would open up my phone's timer and set it for three minutes and 10 seconds, assuming that it would take me about 10 seconds to get out of the car and get ready. The breeding bird survey point count is three minutes. And when the timer runs out, the Merlin recording automatically stops, which was a nice discovery. So for the review itself, largely positive, couple caveats, as you might expect. Um, there were a few false positives, not as many as you might think. Uh, there was one incident where a northern mockingbird was singing right near one of my stops, you know, very clearly, very cleanly, and Merlin promptly identified six species from that one bird's song, which is funny. And well, you know, kudos to that mockingbird. Well done. You've done your name proud. But I could see the bird and I knew to discount those. It seems to have a little trouble with songs that include a bunch of elements, 
For instance, I got false positives for Song Sparrow when I had singing Chipping Sparrows and Eastern Tohi in the vicinity and frequently singing kind of on top of each other. Uh, again, I was there to confirm, and honestly, like a Song Sparrow would not be out of place in that habitat. Uh, it was really good at finding things that I missed because I was paying attention to something else. For instance, a wide-eyed vireo, which I would normally have no trouble picking up, but I was listening closely to a tanager and trying to decide whether it was summer or scarlet. Um, it picked up some calling roughwing swallows at one stop that I had completely overlooked, despite being quite close, kind of embarrassing. Um, but it was nice. It was the only place that I, that I had them, and Merlin did not rub my nose in it. My ears are always going to be better at finding distant birds, even with a mic hooked up. There were some stops that it picked up nothing, but I had some birds that were singing fairly far away that I was able to add. Um, but as a device to kind of second guess myself or, you know, run kind of a quality assurance on my own abilities to, to uh, document bird songs, it was, it was really useful. I will use it again. I think there were a couple species that I would not have found if not for Merlin, but even so, it was sort of right at my average of 64 species for the root, and my numbers were comparable to other years that I've done this, so it didn't really feel like cheating. Uh, I would be curious to hear if anyone else tries this and what their impressions are. It's a neat tool. It will probably continue to improve, and I could see a day when maybe the BBS folks you know, recommend that we use it. Who knows? Robot birders coming to take away our volunteer gigs. On the show this week, it is split and lump season, and friend of the show Nick Block returns to talk about what ABA area birders might see added to their life list this summer. Of all the segments we have done or tried to do in this podcast, Nick's Taxonomy Corner is the most persistent. We've done it since our, our very first year. So this is our fifth episode together, and it is as good as they get. Nick Block joins us right after this week's Ray Birds. <laughs> This is your Rare Bird Focus for the middle of June 2022. We've got two weeks worth of rarities to catch up on, and we'll start in western Alaska, where the spring has been relatively slow, but not without its highlights, particularly on Gamble on St. Lawrence Island in the Bering Sea, where a common house martin was seen this month. Almost all ABA area records of this widespread old world swallow come from Alaska, though there is one outstanding record from St. Pierre et Mequillon, the French colony just south of Newfoundland, suggesting that the eastern Atlantic coast is possible for this bird too. On to the first records, of which there are many. We are firmly in the midst of a hot Limpkin summer in the ABA area with two records of this wide wandering wader in Lynn County, Kansas, in the eastern part of that state, and in Brown County, Indiana. They joined Missouri in adding Limpkin in 2022, following a 2021 that saw new Limpkin records for Arkansas, Minnesota, and Texas. Who is next? Wisconsin, Iowa, Ontario, all seem possible. And that's not all for Indiana, which is slowly turning into Florida, with a pair of Anhinga in Pike County representing a long-awaited first record, their second first in a week. Continuing the trend of southern species moving north, no doubt pushed by extreme heat in the middle of the continent, both Michigan and Wisconsin netted first records of Cassin's Kingbird this month, the former in Lilano County and the latter in Marathon County. Of the western kingbirds, Cassin's is the one with the fewest extralimital records, though that has been changing over the last few years. And it was a good week for 19th century ornithologist John Cassin as a Cassin sparrow 
in Phillips County, Montana, is a first for that state. Another southern species extending north and one that tends to do so in numbers in response to drought conditions in their core range, a phenomenon we are seeing right now. So be on the lookout for this bird as it could turn up pretty much anywhere on the continent. The last time cats and sparrows erupted into the continent, we had records in Illinois, Massachusetts, North Carolina. Those are the rarities for the week, but for the full accounting, check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org RBA. You can also follow along with all the rare bird news in our ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook. In early summer, eager birders turn to bird taxonomy, maybe because the bird activity slows down so much. Uh, and that means that we at the podcast turn once again to our friend Nick Block, professor of biology at Stonehill College in Eastern Massachusetts and committee member for the ABA for various committees and at various times. Uh, and since the beginning of this podcast, uh, the person I like to talk to when it comes to predicting the decisions of the American Ornithological Society's North American Classification Committee, the head splitters and lumpers when it comes to the ABA checklist, we've had a mixed uh, bag of uh, our ability to, to predict things, but it's always fun to talk to you about taxonomy. Thank you for coming back, Nick. Um, good to see you. Yeah, thank you again for having me. I, I it's uh, very enjoyable to do this. The mixed bag has certainly been oh, interesting and fun. I feel and like that's more on them than it is on us. <laughs> yeah, we'll just put it. We'll say that. We'll say that. <laughs> yeah. So we got a we got three whole packets of proposals for this uh, for 2022. The decision is coming down in uh, usually in July is when all the decisions come out. Although a couple of them have kind of been floated, as uh, so we we sort of know the results of at least one. I think. And we'll talk about that one. Um, but what's your sort of sense on the on the whole thing? It felt like it was a very Caribbean and Central America heavy packet. I feel like that's where we're going a lot these days, just because so much taxonomy is being done. That's sort of the the last frontier in terms of of North America. Um, what's 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 your take on it, though? Sure. Yeah, it felt like you know I'd have to go back and look at previous years, but it felt <laughs> like this sure. was a pretty big slate too. Yeah, yeah, there were a lot of stuff. And my impression is actually that several of them are there because right now um, the International Ornithologist Union has this working group on avian checklists, mm -hmm. right? The kind of, I think it kind of stems from the, the, the IOC checklists, the world checklist that, you know, is a little different from the eBird and Clements. Um, but they're, they're trying to kind of centralize this big database of names that more, more people can agree on, um, <laughs> I guess. Uh, and Ebert is involved, like Marshall Ilov is involved in that group and everything. Um, I talked to Brian Sullivan earlier this year about it, and he mentioned that they were they were involved in it. In yeah, that. yeah, which is great to see. Like the IOC, what is this other checklist that I think a lot of international birders, in particular, pay attention to and mm -hmm. use at the, as the basis for their list? And that obviously is different from Ebert. And I do I like to see that they are trying to maybe join these together. Um, but that that committee and other committees that are part of that process now too have made decisions on some of these splits or lumps um, that the North American committee has not considered, even though there are mm -hmm. North American birds. And a lot of these proposals struck me as being written because they want the North American committee on record regarding yeah. these splits that other committees have already made, and but they're on, you know, quote, our birds. Uh, yeah. and so they, they want it on record. I, so I, I got the impression a lot of the proposals were because of that. Huh. That's, that's an interesting insight. Um, just cause a IOC has always been, I guess, considered the more, I don't know, you put things in terms of liberal versus conservative, like the classical definitions of liberal versus conservative. Sure. Um, 
they've always been more open to splits, right? IOC yeah. has a lot of splits that the the AOS, the eBird, Clements do not have. It's interesting if they're sort of pushing them to make these decisions. I, I wonder how the um, the AOS feels about that, the NACC feels about that, because they have a reputation for being really conservative when it comes to them, some of these things. Yes. And, you know, I don't know if we'll get to it, but uh, a number of the proposals that were related to kind of decisions other checklists have made were written. And then the person who wrote them recommended a no vote. So (laughs) (laughs) I was it was it was kind of amusing reading them and being like, oh, this is a well-written proposal. And I can see why maybe they wouldn't vote. And at the end, I strongly recommend a no vote. It's like, oh. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) What exactly are we doing here? (laughs) But that's what I mean. Like, it seems to be because they just want them on the record regarding these splits that other groups have made. And and that makes sense. But at the same time, I'm like, man, I wish I had that kind of time on my hands. (laughs) (laughs) It is funny. You know, I I don't know. Like, the politics of birding list making, it feels like such a frivolous thing. But if eBird is heavily involved in this working group, and they are, uh, to standardize the the English names, standardize the English taxonomy, then does that mean that for reading the tea leaves, does that mean that Ebert is going to break away from the NACC? And if they do, mm. what does the NACC do about that? Because that is the they are the checklist that, like, say, uh, the government uses to make their decisions too. And then you've got kind of a conflict there. That is a very good question, and I think we have already seen some instances, you know, like Mexican duck, mm-hmm. where eBird, the Clements checklist, was willing to go its own way. Quickly followed the next year by the NACC. Yeah, you know, and, and there's another one in, you know, it was in the proposals. Uh, there may have been more than one, but there's at least one in the proposals this year where eBird has already implemented the split. Yeah. Um, it wasn't one that the, I don't think it's one that the NACC has like rejected, but it, uh, it, they've already done it. And I, I so I, I, I don't see them just like fully breaking, but I do see this trend of them not relying solely on NACC decisions anymore. It is interesting and, because that's like the, the, we don't have to talk about this too much more. It is it's like the, the politics of the lists writ small in North America. Like if, if we've always had this conflict between Clements and NACC and IOC, and now if that mm-hmm. gets resolved, then now we've got this conflict within the United States and Canada and the rest yes. of North America. And that just is really confusing and annoying. For, it for is <laughs> and conservationists and everyone who needs yeah. like a standard list. Yeah, when it, like you said exactly that when it comes really to the big impact that kind of you know matters on the bigger picture is when it comes yeah. to conservation decisions. And yeah. this is what I tell my students all the time about why taxonomy can can matter to the the world beyond birders and you know whatever mm-hmm. is that conservation decisions are based on it. So um, you know whether or not that really ends up any conflicts there play a role. I, I it, it seems doubtful but like it, it's definitely possible and yeah, yeah who knows who knows what will happen if there is such a conflict down the line yeah hopefully yeah. hopefully the the, this working group helps reduce those but, yeah. <laughs> fingers crossed fingers crossed that it all comes out uh in the end uh, so let's let's talk about the the proposals themselves there's a lot of them there's a lot of caribbean and we'll talk a little bit about the caribbean ones and a lot of central american ones um, but mm-hmm. obviously we want to sort of focus on the aba area splits that might affect the people who are listening the birders who are listening here so let's let's go ahead and start with the one that we already know has passed uh, because of a survey that went out on possible new names for this split species, and that's of uh, the eastern meadowlark split. 
Um, Eastern metal arc is unique, uh, maybe not unique. There's a number of birds who have weird kind of disjunct subspecies in Northwest Mexico and Southwest United States. And Eastern metal arc is one of these species. There's been a, there's been a subspecies that birders call a Lillian's metal arc. It looks like that's going to be a new species. Yes. And I, you know, it's, it's funny you mentioned that, that survey. I should have looked that up because I can't remember the details about it. And that was when I forgot to go, to go. Oh, look that's up. all right. I've, 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 I can, I can give you that information. Yeah. But I, could, I mean, what, it, there are the four names that were mentioned in the proposal. And, yeah. and I, forgot, I wanted to go double like check. And 12 see names on the same, survey. But... They, they, oh, they really, really oh, went man. nuts. There were a oh, lot. No. Some of them, and some of them were, I mean, none of them were perfect because, you know, maybe no name is perfect. But of course, yeah. some one some of them are acceptable and good, and some mm. of them are just like not good at all. Like like three four word names that are just like over like hyper specific oh, wow. and just unnecessary. Well, like high desert high desert <laughs> metal arc or whatever like yeah. things like that. Yeah. Great great basin desert metal arc or something like that. It's 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 a, it's it's like they're wow. they're trying to they're trying to be too cute with it almost and like they're, when they're. Yeah three or four I mean, names that are appropriate we can just say they're being thorough you know thorough. there you go all right fair <laughs> but, enough. um yeah so the, the, interpretation. It, it, it is good to know like i'm glad to know that this pretty much we already know has has passed um because the proposal was really well done yeah um and you know and and, and the article that is based on was really well done and i did want to point out that the the, the lead author on this was johanna beam yeah. who was a former aba mm-hmm. young birder of the year yeah and she's been on the podcast too, actually. Oh yeah, that's right. I, I knew that. Yeah, I've, a I long time ago. Was that. I was just I was blown away because this is based on her undergrad research mm-hmm. at University of Colorado, and and like the 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 level of kind of like analysis and data and it is very impressive even for a graduate student. Like I just thought this was really cool, and I love seeing ABA young birders go on to do academics. Sure. Like it's, it's, you know, as as someone who followed that route, it's always fun to see, but. So what she did was looked at they did whole genome sequencing of of these metal arcs and you know it's basically as much as you can get um, mm-hmm. and they also did some song analysis as well and both both analyses both data sets basically show that this Liliana the the subspecies in the in the desert southwest uh, clusters on its own totally separate from eastern and western you know just as different from them as they are from each other. Um, and actually, the phylogenetics show that Eastern and Western are the sister species pair, and that Eastern and this oh. Lillian's group are not sister, which is what previously was thought, but that was based on a much smaller genetic data yeah. set. So, um, so yeah, it's it's good to know that it, it has passed because it at this point kind of makes no sense that it would stay lumped with Eastern based on these new data. So, yeah. and there's another subspecies in Western Mexico, Aro pectoralis, if I remember correctly, that that is joined with uh, the Liliane. So, you know, now it's, now we'll have these three species, you know, the Liliane, if people have seen metal arcs in the desert in West Texas or Southern New Mexico or Arizona, that's, you know, they'll, they'll get a new, uh, new species on their ABA life list. And, and what it will be called is still a, an open question. Um, Lillian's yeah. metal arc obviously has, you know, a lot of kind of historical traction. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, there's the movement to kind of move away from eponyms. Yeah. Um, but there were some there were some good names in there. I liked I like pallid metal art. Yes. It refers to the fact that it's paler than that was my in favorite most cases. Well. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's that cool. was my like, favorite and, name. And that was in in Joanna's proposal. That was her mm-hmm. you know recommendation as well. She recommended yeah. a couple other you know a couple other options, but pallid yeah. was her favorite. It makes sense to me because they are very pale. 
um, you know, Chihuahuan is the name used by like Ebert. Chihuahuan as well. Yeah. yeah. So Ebert actually has it as, you know, you know, they have their subspecies groups, right? Mm-hmm. And, and they call it Chihuahuan. Uh, but that would only fit for the Liliane, the, this other subspecies right. further south of Mexico wouldn't, it wouldn't fit for that. So, you know, I, even though Ebert uses it, I, I think palette is the way to go because it, it, that way it includes. That was my number one choice when they sent the yeah. survey out to, um, to Ebert reviewers and uh, um, okay. Chihuahua was my number two. So I'm glad we're on mm-hmm. the same, we're on the same path. Desert yeah. metal arc was another option that I liked. It's not strictly speaking a desert species. It's sort of like a dry grassland, deserty desert grassland species. But yeah. I think desert grassland was one of those names. I was like, oh, come on guys. This is yeah. <laughs> Ballad, Chihuahua and desert. Those are all acceptable. Yeah. In my view. An- another one was white tailed metal arc. Well, they all have white tails, but exactly. That's what I was like. <laughs> it might have the most white, but the other, the others do as well have some yeah. white. So that doesn't, We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. One of the interesting things about this proposal, I love, I'm a sucker for like really great maps. And this proposal yeah. had a super map of Meadowlark subspecies. And yeah. I was shocked. Like it, it blew my mind how many subspecies of Eastern Meadowlark there are. I mean, they stretch yeah. all the way through Central America into Northern South America. It feels like there could be, there's a Cuban subspecies that's yes. in there. Um, that's non-migratory that I, I saw when I visited Cuba. So fingers crossed that's yeah. that split. But think, like it feels yeah. like there's a lot more species in there if people dig just a little bit deeper. Yes, maybe. maybe. So you know, a maybe. lot of those, guess, yeah. a lot of those, she was able to sample. You know, for for the genetic analysis, and mm-hmm. um, they do seem to kind of cluster broadly with Eastern. I mean, which is even more evidence why the Liliana group is different is that Eastern surrounds it you know, and, and is really widespread and they all still mm-hmm. cluster together and yeah. separate from yeah, the Lillian. So, um, yeah, I think if I remember correctly, back to the original kind of original paper that was done by Keith Barker back in 2008 or seven on, on these metal arcs, I, if I remember correctly, Cuban may have been this other one that, that was a little, sort of all by you know, separated, but I, I don't remember for sure. Yeah, it makes you wonder about um, potential vagrants too. You know, if Cuban metal arc is ever split, does that mean that that bird has shown up in Southern Florida and will oh, Southern geez. Florida birders be? It's, it's maybe that's too much of a, a Pandora's box to open. <laughs> I have at no this idea point. how that is identified either. I don't. Yeah, I don't know. Then. It looked more yeah. or less like an Eastern metal arc to me. Yeah. All right, so let's move on to the next one um, in our list here. So, what are the sort of characteristics of this? this year's bank of proposals is that there are a couple notable proposals that go back on recent decisions made by the, uh, the committee. I'm thinking in specifically of uh, relumping Casha crossbill, which was split mm-hmm. out from red crossbill, the, the um, localized version of uh, red crossbill that's only found in this, these mountains in, in Southern Idaho and uh, the resplit of Northwestern crow, which, you know, we talked about not all that long ago. I felt like the evidence for both of those was, was pretty good. Um, what's your take on these two proposals to immediately go back on decisions that they, that they made not all that long ago? You know, I think both proposals have the same kind of drawback and I, I don't anticipate the committee going back on their com- decisions. I would be very surprised. Uh, that's the same people I, on the committee. Like, right. Be- I also should learn from my mistake saying, I'd be very surprised if they do this. <laughs> um, but the, uh, in particular, the Northwestern Crow. So the Northwestern Crow uh, proposal this time around to resplit it, they, they propose a new map and, and basically say that the hybrid zone is much narrower than 
was previously characterized, it, it really does seem, and there was a, a response to the proposal by the original kind of authors of the, the Crow paper that resulted in their lump, um, that the, the, the this new proposal to resplit them really focuses only on the mitochondrial DNA data. Oh, yeah. We've talked a little bit about that and how that is, uh, yeah. Yep. So that can Limiting cause problems. Limiting is the gist. Yes. And and so the that proposal seems to focus on areas where both mitochondrial groups are found, but in saying, if you look at only at that, then the hybrid zone seems narrower, but they did, you know, genomic level sequencing in that the, the paper that was a, a lump proposal was based on showing that the hybrid zone is broader. There's evidence of, you know, nuclear DNA mixing in a much wider area than we mm -hmm. see compared to just where the mitochondrial lineages are found. And that's not surprising at all. You know, we know that mitochondrial DNA doesn't recombine when two species breed together and it's only the mother's versions passed on. So, mm. so you don't necessarily expect to see that level of hybridization in, in, in this broad area like you might with the nuclear DNA. So um, I, I do think that this proposal to resplit them is kind of doomed because... Um, it, it doesn't take into account kind of this extent of nuclear DNA evidence that was in the original proposal. Yeah, so pretty well established in the original proposal. I, I think, think so. You know, yeah. it's it's still it's still one of these things that's yes, it's subjective. There, you, you could still say they're different species with a broader hybrid zone, but I I don't see them changing their. There's basically there's really no new evidence, and that's what they like yeah. to base any like, new changes on is new evidence, and this is based on you know, a, a reanalysis of old evidence that does seem to be a bit flawed or, or limited. So I, I don't see them relumping or re, sorry, resplitting crows. So the crossbow one, however, does seem a little more, I don't know, has, has, a, has a little more legs, I think. Yes. So the crossbill proposal is essentially saying that this crossbill, the Cassie crossbill in the South Hills in Idaho they call it uh, they call it an ecomorph, not a species. So an ecomorph okay, is term. basically a, a a a phenotype of a of species that's locally adapted to a particular habitat. So there has okay. been some evolution locally to to make it really a good fit for that area, but it's not a species. It's maybe on the way to being a species, but it's too recent and and so we shouldn't call it a species it's a very subjective argument i would say like on the on the continuum line of population to new species like where does ecomorph fit with subspecies versus like it's not it feels like it's between population and subspecies yeah i, I think that's a fair way yeah i mean i think that some subspecies you could probably call an ecomorph you know, it's it's not, I, I you know, similar to species, I, I would say it's a somewhat gray all, orders all of kind this of is term. Sort of gray, gray yeah, area. of course. <laughs> but, you know, it, you know, the idea is that, like, again, there were some aspects of this proposal that uh, in the response to the proposal, you know, which was, you know, the response came from uh, Dr. Bankman, who has done all this work on the crossbills for mm -hmm. years. Um it did kind of show that they misinterpreted some things maybe and and uh some of the information they presented probably wasn't giving the full picture that that they gave when it was when it was split um and i do think that he's you know that that response is is correct and that some of it is that 
Cassie crossbill is an incredibly young species, incredibly mm-hmm. young for birds. You know, we're talking in the neighborhood of uh, uh, several thousand years or maybe 16,000 years or something. That's, wow. that's incredibly young yeah. for a bird species. And part, part of their argument is, I, my impression is that that's just not enough time for birds to speciate. But, but that does happen in other, there are other groups where this happens, where you have this very rapid speciation, especially when you have strong kind of ecological differences that are, that are mm-hmm. causing rapid change. It de- so that definitely happens in other areas of the animal world, fish in particular. There's, we have examples of insane speciation rates based on uh, a kind of ecological specialization. Just because it's really rare in birds doesn't mean that it can't happen. Yeah, it feels possible, especially given the you know birds turn over populations much faster than say mammals, and maybe it's the same with yeah. fish. You know, birds sure. they 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 fledge chicks every single year. Like that's the generational turnover is really pretty rapid. So it makes sense that if something it's very dramatic does happen, as in the case of these crossbills, that they could speciate that fast. Yeah, from a, I, from, a from a layman's perspective. Absolutely, yeah, and and clearly, bill size and shape is something that's relatively you know, can change pretty rapidly in crossbills. Mm-hmm. We see that. And if you have enough strong, steady selection in one direction, then that that could lead to, to speciation pretty quickly, I think. I, I don't see that being a, a barrier just because they're birds, right? You yeah. know, the, it's more a scenario. You have mm-hmm. this ecological speciation. And there's enough evidence with the crossbills of reproductive isolation of cassia versus the other types that sometimes are there. Mm-hmm. Um, that they really benefit from the size of their data set and pairs, you know, the banded pairs and all these things. And I think that's part of why, even though it feels like, oh my gosh, how could they become a species so quickly? Their evidence was so, their, their data set was so large, it was enough to convince what is typically a conservative committee, right? Mm-hmm. This is the first time the vote came up on this, it didn't pass the, the Cassie Crossbill yeah. yeah. split, you know, and then they added more evidence. I will say that there's been a recent development that does change the story maybe a tiny bit, uh, you know, in the response, they mentioned how Cassia Crossbill has never been recorded to wander outside. Oh, yeah. The South Hills. And there was that recent uh, record from, uh, from Northern Colorado. Yes. Yeah. Christian Nunes recorded mm-hmm. uh, a, a crossbill that he wasn't sure about, if I remember correctly. And it turned out to be, you know, when you look at the sonogram and everything, a Cassia Crossbill call type. Mm-hmm. So they do wander, at least on occasion, but it probably yeah. is incredibly rare. So that's, you know, um, I don't think it, it, changes the the story but as like you said in so many of these things it's gray areas philosophically subjective with this one it's with the south hills crossbill you know it's acting like a different species right now yeah but i can't help but wonder you know say squirrels move in and they change the pine cones because there's this really interesting relationship you know i Mm -hmm. I think we've talked about this a little bit between the squirrels and the pine cones and the crossbills yeah that if squirrels were to move in and so the lodgepole pine cones kind of evolve on a different track, and then they're no longer the same thing that the crossbills have evolved to specialize on. Would those crossbills then be kind of, would they change and then be subsumed into the broader red crossbill <laughs> category, or would they yeah. go extinct? Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and, and I strongly believe the former. Right, yeah. that that um, evolution would basically take them back on a path that would then so merge far, so far removed. Yeah, yeah. I think they would. They very much potentially could just merge right back in to red crossbill, and you know, I I like the term despeciation. I very much think that they could do that, huh. but just because they can 
does that mean we should still call them one species? This is this, you know, very, people, I think, very much disagree on that, right? And uh, right now, in the current window of time, they act like a different biological species. Well, let's talk about a a split um, that sort of has a more, a longer track record, at least of splits of this sort. And -hmm. that was the uh, proposal to split the Wimbrels, old world, new world split of the sort that we have seen in Snipe, Galanules. Um, yes. There's a lot of this. There's a lot of this happening. Um, yes. Old world wimbrels, um, always called the European wimbrels, Eurasian wimbrels. Yeah, Eurasian. Um, yeah. Eurasian. They have been uh, identified as separate by North American birders for as long as they possibly, as long as I remember. And yes. um, they're, they're quite different. They look different than our North American wimbrels. And it feels like a, a pretty cut and dried split. But for whatever reason, they have never been split in North America. Now, this isn't perhaps another one we're talking about with IOC has split these for a long time and perhaps eBird will at some point too. Um, yes. But it's, a, it's an interesting one. It feels like it's long overdue. Do you agree? Yeah, I, I do. I, I agree that it's long overdue. Uh, I, they, they actually rejected this split all the way back in 2000. Um, someone yeah. put it put forward. But obviously back then we didn't have the level of genetic data we do now. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, it mirrors some other splits that have happened in the recent decades. And uh, and yes, as birders, you know, probably know, they're easily identified. You know, mm-hmm. if you see a wimbrel flying around with a white rump, it's like, hey, you know, <laughs> this is not a North American um, one. <laughs> yeah, you know, and and they did used to be split. This is one. This is part of this group of species that uh, were lumped in the forties, thirty. You know, the the some people call the lumparama kind of age, <laughs> where you know things were lumped kind of in some cases with no real justification. And yeah. uh, some people think the wimbrels kind of fit that that they were lumped, but without real justification. It, basically, they wouldn't be lumped now. Yeah. So the question is, should we just resplit them? And you know, in two thousand, it was rejected. I think it was based off of kind of not quite enough information. Um, but there's been new data since. No surprise. There's kind of the genomic level. Nuclear DNA sequencing that's happened uh, came out in a paper in 2020 um, that actually, I, this is a really cool paper because it compared eight different species pairs of, of trans-Beringian birds, right? So these <laughs> things that occur on either side of the uh, Alaska, uh, Asia area. And it showed that there were kind of four of these species pairs that seemed to have high gene flow between them. Mm-hmm. And then four that seem to have really low. And there's a it, there's this really cool figure that really shows the distinctness. Like there are four that are way over on the left that have high gene flow. And then yeah. four over on the right that don't. And the wimbrels are over on the right. So it's showing that they have very little gene flow between them. Yeah. And they're very similar to the magpies. So we've already split the, you know, mm-hmm. a, the, our black-billed magpie from the, the old world magpie. And wimbrels seem to have... Uh, genetic data that are very similar to the magpies mm-hmm. and paired with then the, the plumage differences that are really obvious. Um, I, I, I do, I do think that they, they're going to split this, right? The, yeah. The, it, it's clear that they fall into these two kind of categories of what's going on. Um, and so, yeah, we'll see, you know, it's always one of those things that who knows, but this is one where if they don't split, I will, uh, Definitely feels like maybe they're being overly conservative because it yeah. shows them so similar to magpies, which is a split they they made. Yeah. Um, not too different from the the tattlers, uh, gray tail and wander. You know things that are have always been split. Yeah. Um, what I found interesting about that same paper is that it showed that the pine grosbeak. Yeah. Had, yeah. I was just gonna talk. I was just gonna ask yeah. you about that. That was really interesting. Yeah. Um, 
they didn't mention it much, but yeah. It makes sense too. I mean, if yeah. we're if we're looking at these, I mean, you say there's there's so many old world, new world splits, and there's so many potential old world, new world splits out there too. Um, yes. That we probably need to take a little bit closer look at. Maybe this working group will kind of push push them in the yeah. direction. But I, Wimbrel seems like such a no brainer to me. But we've said that before. So I, exactly this this level of data, you know, is new, and I do think that they'll they'll accept it based on the new yeah. data. And then we get. Yeah. Um, I guess the big question is whether or not we would call it Hudsonian Curlew, which is the yeah. old name for it, yeah. or Hudsonian Wimbrel. I'm not sure what which way they'll go there. Yeah. I think Hudsonian Wimbrel and Eurasian Wimbrel makes more would, sense. Makes more sense. It's kind of what people have been using lately, you know. So yeah, um, I like Hudsonian Curlew. I like Hudsonian. Like, well, it would be color. like the uh, the weird um, common Gallinule, common Morhen. Yes, yeah. <laughs> but even though those yeah. two species are their their closest relatives, the names give the impression that they're not. Curlew is a little bit better, yeah. but um, yeah, yeah. I I like the name Hudsonian Curlew. It just feels cooler. But I I think for stability, I have a feeling they'll probably do Hudsonian Wimbrel. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah, one of those second order honorifics. Yeah. Though um, I'm, I'd have less of an issue with this, these. Uh, one more note about that paper I wanted to say is that in the in the four pairs that show really high gene flow and mm-hmm. like don't seem to be acting like species, American and Eurasian widgeon. Yeah. So even though they look so yeah. different. There's apparently a lot of gene flow going on, but duck, ducks are weird when it comes ducks to hybridizing and gene flow. Yeah, but I, I and found the, that the teal too. You know, people have uh, you know teal is one of those ones that's it's kind of a, a poster child for the a- IOC. The differences between the IOC and the a- a- AOS right. lists. Um, you know, they've split the teal. We've had them as the similar for a long time. But people, you know, on the East Coast, as you know, I mean, if a Eurasian teal shows up, people make note of it. It's a noteworthy yes. bird. Um, but yes, it maybe fell it into that be. same category of high yeah. gene flow. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but yeah, Eurasian American widgeon are kind of just like them genetically in terms of stuff. Yeah, interesting stuff. Let's talk about another uh, big split that seems long overdue. Uh, I have it listed on our notes as the House Wren mega split. Sure. Um, this only sort of vaguely applies to the ABA area, but I thought it was interesting because House Wren is one of those species that's sort of ubiquitous. Uh, across much of the much of the continent, um, yeah. a lot of people are familiar with house wrens. A lot of people love house wrens. I love house wrens. Um, amazing song. Um, but house wren is a species that is dispersed across the Caribbean. And I feel like Caribbean speciation is under is underappreciated. We talk about Hawaii. We talk yeah, about Galapagos yeah. Islands. But the Caribbean. I mean, that stuff's happening on the Caribbean too, with some really cool bird families. Wrens are one of them. And uh, the house wren mega split splits house wren into like eight different species seven different species um, yes. most of them are island endemics found on a lot of these little islands in the lesser antilles and yeah. that are very different from our north american house friend we're very familiar with yes how did these things get overlooked for so long you know it in it's probably because there has not been and there still has not been like the, yeah. the this proposal isn't based on some new study there still yeah. hasn't been a comprehensive study on them there there's no genetic data it's one of these things that's just ripe for a, a dissertation you know oh like for someone, sure someone, you get to be a graduate student that travels all around the caribbean i know it's a tough it's a tough, tough, gig. tough it's thing a tough gig. but yeah. someone's got to do it um yeah. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if someone is, you know, doing it yeah. right now, but we just don't know um, because it really is. It is low hanging fruit on a mm-hmm. project like that, I think, because, yeah, these birds are not they're not house wrens. Right. You know, no. it, if you were to go to some of these islands and see it, it doesn't sound like it. It doesn't look like one. There are some that are super rufous underneath with long bills. 
They look yeah. nothing like our Some that are like white on the chin. Yeah, and some that are just white bellied. Like totally a lot, most different. of them have longer bills. It's, it's, uh, um, which longer bills on islands is, on islands is a thing. And uh, so, yes, it's, it's to me, and as the proposal kind of says it is like, it's this no brainer that we just haven't done yet. And, you know, why, so let's stop waiting and just do it kind of thing. Yeah. Even though there's not really genetic data, there's not some new paper that came out. Um, but it's funny that they do kind of compare it to the, to the winter wren split saying, well, we split these and they look basically the same. <laughs> They're really well, hard to tell apart. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and so how could we not split the house wrens? And it, it is unusual as that logic might be. It makes sense to me. It's like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. right. Like exactly. Let's be consistent about these things. Um, so yeah, these, all these, all these island species, Cozumel, uh, uh Dominica, St. Lucia, St. Vincent, um, all have their own race of uh, house wren, and that's the proposal is basically saying split them all. Um, the only one that they were a little uh, unsure of was the one on Granada, um, hmm. and and maybe that's not distinct enough from the South American mainland uh, group, um, and which isn't surprising. It's not that far away from like Trinidad Tobago where you do mm-hmm. have more mainland things. Yeah, I think it's overdue. I, I think a lot of people have been saying you know people have been saying that for a long time and now we have a proposal basically saying let's just do it and yeah. um it will be you know it'll be kind of interesting i have a feeling there probably will be some no votes because there aren't you know new genetic data or anything like that yeah. um but it's one of those where it's like you know you gotta it's the common sense aspect too where it's like well yeah come on if we split winter runs how could we not split the, you know it, you know yeah. that logic again like it makes sense to me um sometimes you can just eyeball it and be like yeah these are different you know? <laughs> it, but but they are very conservative so yeah. i honestly am not sure how it'll go but so if you've ever been to the caribbean and and seen house runs it's, it's a good chance make you sure know, you know which island you are different. On. <laughs> yeah exactly you get, yeah exactly because yeah some of them look very different and what's interesting is like they're not you know, the, the islands closest to each other don't necessarily have the ones that look most yeah. similar. Like yeah. Cozumel actually looks most similar to like, can't remember if it was St. Lucia or St. Vincent or something. Basically, Caribbean speciation is, I, say, I agree. I, that I it's feel a like there's this amazing color. story that needs to be told about yeah. Caribbean speciation. Not just birds, there's, you know, lizards, insects, yes. some mammals or some weird endemic mammals in the Caribbean that yeah. no one ever hears about. And yeah, there, there's a story there that, about evolution that could be told that's really fascinating yeah. potentially gets, really fascinating the like in in animals the lizards uh mm-hmm. the, they that's where like a lot of the work has been done but i yeah. i agree birds it's you know underappreciated we do know i mean there's a couple endemic families in the caribbean very excited to be going to puerto rico for the american ornithology conference yeah, later yeah, this yeah. month because i get to see a toady i'm so excited nice. um but yeah exactly there are these there are lots of endemics uh warblers you know things that that you know i i think sometimes maybe we don't talk very much about like you said hawaii yeah. gets a lot of press and rightly so given the extinction crisis but yeah yeah lots of cool endemics throughout the the caribbean islands so one of the things that amazes me is um there's a lot of extinct endemics like amazing yeah. birds that apparently were were wiped out in the 1700s uh during you know the colonization of those islands but there was mm-hmm. like they were like long-legged owls and you know there was an amazing macaw in cuba that unfortunately yeah. is no longer with us and petrels and that just really and we're cool still stuff. seeing some of that happening now too the including yeah. one of the wrens so the in the house wren the guadalupe 
Ren is already, I think that's the one that's already yeah, extinct. That's, yeah, and, probably, but yeah. the, the one in Martinique, uh, Martinique, oh, I can't remember if, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, <laughs> is, is extinct or is thought to be extinct. Maybe, like, we're not sure. So, yeah, it's stuff that's ongoing, too. And um, yeah. I, I, I like to see taxonomy like this where conservation does, you know, like it matters. Mm -hmm. Like if you split these out, suddenly you're like, oh, well, now we have this endemic species that's super endangered. Now we're yeah. calling it a species, so maybe now it'll get more attention. And yeah. I, you know, it, it that's a again the bigger picture of why taxonomy can matter. And hopefully, something like this, you know, if these are split, could draw attention to yeah. further attention to that uh, idea of of species dwindling on some places in the Caribbean, which is like, ongoing. Yeah, let's do one more, and this is sort of a fun one from uh, Alvaro Jaramillo. A lot of grumbling about last year's uh, split of Mugol and from Common Goal, not because of the split, which a lot of people uh, welcomed, but because of the uh, NACC's decision to call the North American Bracarhynchus short-billed goal, which kind of threw everyone for a loop. Um, Al's, yeah. Al, this is a fun, this is actually a really fun proposal of the type that we don't always see in these, uh, pretty much like, come on guys, everyone knows us the Mugle. <laughs> why, why did we change yeah. the name? <laughs> yeah, this is, you know, uh, Alvaro kind of mentions it's a pretty unique scenario and this is yeah, kind, <laughs> is of, a a unique, scenario, kind yeah. of a unique proposal too. Yeah. And basically saying, no, no, it's not too late. We can go back. <laughs> <laughs> they haven't changed any of the books yet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, come on, who's I, who's calling it a short bill goal? I, I gotta, I, you know, I'm not. I only do it because I <laughs> sort of have to. Yeah, exactly. I, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the original proposal said, kind of said that we should switch it to short bill goal because Mugol was being used for the whole species complex uh, around the world. And so we changed the name to reduce confusion. Mm -hmm. This is some, you know, now they have a little more straightforward rules on how they want to handle these things, but it's never, they have not been applied consistently. Exactly. Uh, uh, yeah. uh, <clears throat> winter rent. Um, but, <laughs> Can't hit a goose. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so, but the, the, the original proposal kind of said that it should be changed because Mugol was being used for the whole world complex. But the thing is, it really, it was only being used by a couple, like the IOC checklist and um, uh, the birds of the world. Mm -hmm. but, but both of those, as far as I understand, were relatively kind of recent usages, uh, you know, and if you look more at the historical usage in the last few decades, Mughal, like old world authorities, like European birders and whatever, when mm -hmm. they say Mughal, they've always referred Bracarinchus. to, to yeah. Bracarinchus, the thing that, that short bill, the thing that occurs in North America. Mm -hmm. They've never called their birds Mughals. Like they, they just yeah. don't. The, the authorities that did were these kind of big like IOC checklist things that really, it didn't really follow what, birders and local ornithologists were using for their yeah. birds in the old world. And so Alvaro's kind of making the case that even though Mugle was being used by a world checklist, it wasn't the standard usage for Mugle's outs, you know, th this complex outside of North America. Yeah. And, and he's saying that to promote, you know, one of the part of the rules are, you know, the English name rules is uh, promoting stability and reducing confusion and things like that. Mm -hmm. And his argument is that keeping it Mugal for Brachyrhynchus is the thing that would be more stable yeah, and cause less confusion. And, I, you know, 
I can't disagree with that. No, and it, based on you know my conversations I've had with birders, you know everyone knows it as mugle here. Here in North Carolina, where I live, we get both of them as vagrants. Yeah, and no, we we make we make distinctions between the mugles yeah. in the Western U.S. and the common gulls from Europe. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. When when yeah. same in New England, when yeah. uh, old world go, would gulls would show up, that we they call call them common gulls, right? Mm-hmm. So it's it really has. It's not like we've called them common and short billed to distinguish between. It's we've just called them mu and and common yep. in here in North America. So I, I do I agree with this point. Now whether or not the committee <laughs> will. We were just talking about how they're this unlikely is, to go back on recent decisions. Yep, this is going to be interest, an interesting vote because I think it's one of those things that uh, I personally, you know, committees and people in general are hesitant to go back on a decision they've made. <laughs> basically admit, yeah. not admit they were wrong, but like admit that maybe it wasn't the best decision, you know? Yeah, it was poorly received. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's a lot of hesitancy. It's just human nature to, you yeah. know, I think to be hesitant about that kind of thing. But I agree with Alvaro. It's not too late. Um, not I too think late. if we switch back, the right thing. that everyone will be like, oh, okay, I wasn't even calling it short build yet anyway because I wasn't <laughs> used to it. Yeah. I, most people, I think, would fall into that category, yeah. and it could just end up being this little blip footnote that wouldn't really affect anything, and 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 you know there wouldn't be confusion because of a switch back. I don't think. Yeah, I, I'm very interested actually to see. Oh, this is one of these things that like it's not taxonomic, but you know it, it's interesting. It gets to the point whether the NACC takes into account the opinions of birders who are yeah. sort of the recipients of the work that they do, but not necessarily the focus of the work they do, right? So we sort of sure. take their decisions and we, you know, apply them to the birds that we see around us. But we don't, I don't know, it's like, it sometimes feels like that that doesn't go the other way, right? This is effectively yeah. like hobby birders and the birding yeah. public saying, this is the bird, this is what we call this bird. You, you don't, you're not speaking just to the scientific community. You're yes. speaking to all the people who look at birds around the entire world? Yes. And can you can you throw us a bone here because yeah. we haven't gotten very many of those bones it's, over the it's years. It's a valid <laughs> point. It's a valid point because the scientific community, the ornitho- ornithological community as a whole, still tends to favor you know using scientific names in their papers and things mm-hmm. like that. The the people who really focus on and use common names as the primary currency of communication about birds yeah. are, are are birders. Yeah. Um and so yeah, I think it's a really good point. Should the NACC have purview over common names when they're not the ones who primarily use them as means of communicating about it gets those to the species. whole bird names for birds issue in some way yes. as well. It's sort of tied mm-hmm. into this. Like who who yeah. is doing this for whom? Yeah, I, I mean, I think the argument could be made that uh, ABA or eBird, I think eBird maybe, eBird would, would be, a, would be yeah. a better, you know, uh, kind of uh, authority yeah. to determine yeah. common names because, yeah, yeah. so it, it, it's, it's uh, I mean, maybe, <laughs> politics, we begin and end. Exactly, with, uh, right. Birding politics. If, I, if I were on the committee. Politics. If I were on the committee, I wouldn't, that wouldn't, to me, that would, I wouldn't be sensitive about this at all, but I could see them being a little defensive about that kind of thing. Who who knows? I, who knows? I you know, but uh, yeah, not a taxonomic vote at all, but it'll be very, I think very interesting to see what they do. 
Yeah. Well, Nick, um, some good thoughts. Uh, fingers crossed that our track record ends up uh, pulling back more towards the, uh, the correct <laughs> way as opposed uh, right, after correct. this. I, I feel very good about all these decisions um, right up to the point where they release what they're actually going to do. Yes, so. as always. <laughs> it's always a pleasure to have you. Uh, Nick Block, uh, he is a professor of biology at Stonehill College in Eastern Massachusetts, friend of the podcast, friend of the ABA. You can find him online. I'll have a link to his stuff uh, in the show notes. Please check that out. Nick, thanks so much. Thanks again, Nate. Always great to talk to you. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast, you can support it by supporting the ABA with your membership. There are many benefits like our magazines, discounts to partners, opportunities to travel with us, with me, come to Panama with me this September. You can get information on all that at aba.org slash join. Special shout outs this week too. Bruce Gaylor of Elk River, Minnesota, Peter Kenmore of Daly City, California, Toby Kuzman and Dean Turley of Luttrell, Tennessee, William Kramer of Campbell Hall, New York, Susie Marvel of Rochester, Indiana, Ray and Meredith Pratt of Wallingford, Vermont, Joey Sacido of Family of Pemberton, Ohio, Ruth York of Coronado, California, and the appropriately named Trisha Thrasher of Loma Linda, California. Wish I had a bird last name. It would probably really help my image. All of them recently joined the ABA and noted the podcast as a reason for doing so. Thank you so much for that. We really, really appreciate it. Executive director of the ABA and executive producer of the podcast is Nikki Belmonte, who notes that the IOC checklist is not distributed by the International Olympic Committee, though she wouldn't be averse to seeing big day birding added as an Olympic sport. There's not really a joke there. It would just, just be cool. Technical production is by John Lowry, who knows that the IOC does not refer to the infantry officer's course of the Marine Corps, no matter how often he complains that General Sow's chicken is not an option on eBird. Additional help comes from David Hartley and Greg Neese, who urge you to note that the IOC does not refer to the Indian Ocean Commission, even if you confuse Neotropic Cormorant with Indotropic Cormoros. You can find us online at ABA.org and on social media most everywhere as American Birding Association. On Twitter, we are at ABA. Do be aware that the IOC does not refer to the International Olive Council, though it does remind me that a recently proposed name change for Olive Warbler was not accepted by the NACC, despite the fact that the bird is not olive, nor a warbler, and a better name would have been the proposed Okotero. But ultimately, it's what you call them out of preference. Niswans from Nate. Thank you. Questions, comments can come to podcast at ABA.org. I'm Nate Swig. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. Till next week.